This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guests this week are Chrissy Stroop and Lauren O'Neill. They are the co-editors of the essay anthology, Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church. Both have been on the show before and are friends of mine, and we get sort of punchy in this episode, uh, discussing the anthology and a whole bunch of other things. And I can't wait for you to hear this conversation again. Just thinking about it sort of makes me smile and laugh. Um... You can get the book, Empty the Pews, anywhere you can find books for sale. That does include Amazon or your local bookstore. Please also let your library know to pick up and carry the book. If you want to support the show, you can do so by supporting it on Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. You can also sign up for my new newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, which just launched recently. It is over at postevangelicalpost.com. You can also let people know about the show or rate and review it over on Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Jake Lewis. Thank you very much, Jake. All right, let's get right into this conversation with Chrissy and Lauren. Everybody, welcome back to Exvangelical. I have two return guests with me this week to talk about their new book. They are Chrissy Stroop and Lauren O'Neill. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Blake. Hello. Thank you for having us. Always good to join you. I notice you don't introduce me as Doctor Stroop anymore. Wow. Uh, <laughs> wow. Well, we're, we're much more. We're, we're more familiar. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like my favorite crossover podcast casting everything I just have to say is when this came up on Sunday School Dropouts and Lauren uh, and Lauren yeah. was like, we just call him Stroopy. I was also using human <laughs> pronouns back then. But <laughs> yeah. Dude, and then the next the next like person with a doctorate that we had on, we introduced him as like doctor and he was like, Oh, in my field we only use that like pejoratively. Like it's like a joke, like, oh doctor over here. <laughs> And we were like, oh, okay, cool. Okay, so we can't win. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm married to a doctor, too. So I just, you know, just that showing that level of respect. I I, I get it. I grew up in Indiana, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. You just got to You got to add those honorifics. (laughs) People worked hard for them. (laughs) So religion thoughts. Uh, it's it's just, certainly a kidding. thing. <laughs> it's a vast, complex phenomenon full of sub phenomena. Sub phenomena. There you have it. Sub phenomena. End, end of podcast. Yeah. Okay, we're done. So lovely to talk with you. <laughs> All right, we're done. <laughs> talk to you later. No, you. Uh, the book that you both have worked on here is uh, and been working on for years. It and just came out at the end of 2019. is called "Empty the Pews: Stories of Leaving the Church," and I want to hear a little bit uh, just about what led you to do this story and sort of the background and the origin story of this project because it has been something that that the two of you have been working on, working on for years. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lauren, do you want to start that or should I? <laughs> um, sure. Um, so Chrissy and I met, um, I was in undergrad and she was a grad student. Um, and uh, I was 
dating one of her friends at the time uh, for like six <laughs> months before I started dating my now husband. Anyway, um, <laughs> then one of my other friends dated that guy and then she married somebody else that we also both No, she did. <laughs> she dated him before me. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I got the. Yeah. Get up. it together. <laughs> So <laughs> anyway, uh, Chrissy and I bonded over having both uh, left Christianity. Um, I was raised mainline Protestant. I was raised Presbyterian. Um, Chrissy was raised with a much more um, conservative evangelical uh, background. But we noticed that we had a lot of stuff in common, um, despite coming from such different backgrounds. And we would always be like, you know, we should do we should like do an anthology. We should get other people's stories. And it was just like a, we should do this. We should do this for years. And then we somehow started putting it together. And then somehow after years of putting it together, it exists in the world. That's basically the story of the book. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty neat. I think this might be my only, we should do this that has actually managed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting for the like, we should get coffee. But somehow we should compile an anthology of essays by people who left the church happened. It took <laughs> like, like eight years, but it happened. I mean, I guess I've had a few, like, we should go out for Indian foods that also did happen, but, you know. Well, congratulations <laughs> to you. We should do deep, deep sea fishing in Cape Cod. That never happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chrissy, did you have any other any other thoughts about uh, what, what led to the publication or to developing the anthology? Well, I know you're always super humble, Blake, but I do want to say thank you for introducing us to um, Kyle Parton uh, and Epiphany Publishers, his um, publishing company, who ended up publishing the book. So that's really nice, you know. Um, we uh, we were working with an agent for a while, and he was more, um, well, let's just say, you know, we had some differences. Um, he approached a lot of large presses, and at the end, they all kind of passed, and then we were interested in looking into small presses, and so we parted ways, and yeah, the the first thing that we really, I mean, the first publisher that we really reached out to was Epiphany uh, at your recommendation and you putting us in touch. And um, so they, they uh, you know, well, Kyle liked the project. He brought it to the whole editorial board. Mm -hmm. um, we got some, you know, reviews and everything, talked through them, and um, Epiphany decided to publish the book. So that was really exciting. And yeah, like that... you were kind enough to blurb it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yes. I don't know if that means to... <laughs> What's what's the thing about disclaimers and everything? I'm, oh, I don't feel like I'm big, I don't feel like I'm big time <laughs> enough to do a disclosure. But, <laughs> but this book wouldn't exist without you, so thank you. It's true. <laughs> well, you're welcome, and I'm glad that it. Uh, I'm glad that it it, it came about and it, and then it worked out. I just facilitated a oh yeah a contact point. So. I'm just a vessel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a vessel for the universe. Yeah, we, uh, we we like Kyle and Epiphany. Yeah, yeah. So they've been they've been good to us. <laughs> One of the things that that obviously is very uh, sort of important to me and one of the reasons I do continue to do this show is because stories and narratives are so important and they can be really helpful in us really being able to process things for ourselves. Within the different collections of, of stories that you have, most of them, are, are all of them or would you categorize all of them as autobiographical? Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah, they're all personal essays. Mm -hmm. They're all about people's stories. Yeah, we, we definitely share your, um, you know, the, the value that you place on individual people's stories. 
for things like, you know, making a connection and being able to get a sense of like, you know, what someone else's experience has been like, whether it resonates with yours in some way because it's very similar or you get intrigued even though it's very different. Um, personal stories have a lot of power. And, um, you know, it's all, I've also been thinking a lot about how we can, um, you know, tell stories like that as part of sort of broader initiatives as well to try to start to shift public discourse about things like religion, um, shift public opinion, you know. Uh, stories have value in their own right, but they also have, have that kind of power, particularly when, you know, they're brought together collectively. Well, juxtaposition also has, I think, a, a really great literary power. And so putting all these stories together, seeing how they, you know, share certain elements and seeing how they differ gives you a really broad view of different sub-phenomena under the umbrella <laughs> phenomenon. <laughs> Okay, I'm Googling that word to see if it's a real word. <laughs> it is now. We're going to petition the OED and it's, it's going to happen. Sub-phenomenon. <laughs> so on that note, juxtap juxtaposing things as far as being the compilers of these essays and what sort of things did you learn as you were soliciting these? Because they're so, they are really varied. Um, they, they do cover a wide swath of experiences when you were just juxtaposing these against your own experiences, what what was shocking to you and what was resonant? Um, I mean, certainly there are some some very difficult stories of abuse um, that I think would be shocking for for most people, um, and that were shocking for me. It was interesting to me. I come from not a super like you know a conservative background, but not to the extent that most of the people in our book are from. Um, mm -hmm. But it was very interesting to me how much I resonated with different stories about, you know, like just always feeling like you're never enough, always mm -hmm. um, worrying about you, your soul's, you know, eternal fate and uh, having this attitude that things are bad and you're bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because I'm, I'm laughing because I relate. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Not, <laughs> not because I'm an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> if you read the book, people uh, will express it much more eloquently than that. But you know, it, it's interesting the threads that you can draw between like less radical and more radical traditions. You find a lot of the same emotions. Mm -hmm. In in all also, subphenomenon is totally a word hyphenated in academic discourse. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be hyphenated according to the Chicago Manual of Style, but let's move on. <laughs> okay, sorry. Yeah, no. Professional um, editor. <laughs> so, on the air. <laughs> yeah, um, Lauren was definitely the editorial MVP of this book project. I don't know why I decided to be the comic relief tonight, but um, you know, I, <laughs> I edited. A, uh, an English language daughter journal of a Russian religious studies journal for a while, and I absolutely hated doing that. It was extra hard because I had to come up with a style guide that could could come up could kind of work for fields as disparate as history, sociology, anthropology, and so forth, and um, that made for a really messy mix of APA and 
um, MLA with a little Chicago thrown in and it just really sucked and Lauren, it would probably drive you nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so happy when I could pawn that job off onto somebody else. I'm sure all the listeners are absolutely riveted by the differences between all the style guides. You know, we get into the weeds on this show that usually not citation style weeds, <laughs> but you know, I you got to mix it up sometimes. Trying to be fresh and original. Um, <laughs> no, but, uh, yeah, as for the things that were surprising or shocking about this book, I mean, I definitely grew up with more hardline fundamentalist evangelicalism, you know, than Lauren's kind of mainline Presbyterianism. Um, and I also did not suffer the worst kind of abuses that you can get in that sort of environment. Um, so, you know, there are some stories of just really harrowing um, types of abuse in this book. Um, physical abuse, um, you know, Deirdre Suguchi having to scrub toilets with a toothbrush, uh, a um, Christian reform school in the Dominican Republic run by American mm. evangelicals. Um, yeah. Calling it a Christian reform school is like, does not do justice to the the brainwashing and abuse that happened at that school. I mean, sure, like a Christian abuse camp. I yeah, don't know. that's a better but, term. <laughs> that's more accurate. <laughs> what it should be called. You know, one of these things that operates out of a ministry based in Indiana that has ties to Mike Pence that, is, you know, calls itself a reform school for rebellious children and totally fucks them up. So um, so there's stuff like that in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think one of, some of the things that were um, maybe most informative to me, just in terms of things I hadn't really read a lot about or learned a lot about already, were the ones that had to do with, like, um, immigrant communities. Um, those, were, those were really interesting. The way that, um, you know, Juliana Delgado-Lopera... Um, came to the United States as a Catholic and then through the, her relatives, you know, they got involved in this evangelical community. And so learning about some of those dynamics in Florida, for example. Um, I, I also really liked, um, uh, gosh, I always forget. Lauren, do you know how to pronounce her last name? You know who I'm talking about. Ruby? Ru- yeah. Uh, Ruby Thiagarajan. Yeah, so Ruby Garajan's essay about, um, you know, growing up with uh, prosperity gospel churches, mega churches in Singapore, inspired by American models and even having, like, American books and American uh, sermons on tape and that sort of thing, um, was really neat to me. It was kind of eye-opening in a way just to see that, like, American evangelicalism has as much of a global reach. And I knew there was some of that going on in parts of Asia. I mean, I knew that there's a very large Presbyterian presence in Korea. Shout out. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> You're not Korean? Oh, Presbyterian. No, the, pres- the Presbyterian part of that equation. Yeah. <laughs> not the Korean. <laughs> <laughs> book has a lot of heaviness to it um so having a little bit of levity around a discussion about it isn't isn't the worst thing in the world i am curious how how the two of you feel about the way it's been received so far you've been you've been working on this for a long time and and it's finally out in the world and i know 
just within my own experience, it's sometimes hard to gauge how someone's going to respond to a story or a personal essay about religion that is negative. Um, there does seem to be this sense that religion is overall benign, and this collection of essays refutes that pretty strongly, I think. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what, what both of your thoughts are. Uh, Lauren, go ahead and go, go first uh, in your response about that, just and about how it's been received to date and, and what do you think about that, that response? Yeah, um, I mean, to me, I think the response has been super positive. Um, you know, when you, when you publish a book like this, um, I mean, Chrissy does a lot of activism work. I have a podcast called Sunday School Dropouts. We're both used to hearing from, you know, people who are closed-minded Christians who, like, reject our ideas out of hand. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, okay, yeah, you, you expect that going in, whatever. But the response that we've had from people who are progressive believers, from people who have left the church, um, who can really listen and absorb other people's stories and, and empathize with other people. Mm -hmm. That is so meaningful to me. And if even like one person had that response, this would be worth it to me. And to read multiple people's responses like that, you know, just on Twitter, you know, in a couple reviews and publications, it's been really, really thrilling for me. Yeah. It's been great to see it, um, you know, reviewed, pretty sympathetically in the Washington Post, for example, and to see it um, commented on on social media, resonating very strongly with a lot of people. And it's kind of bringing back that feeling that I think I initially had when ex-evangelical Twitter really started to kind of become a thing. You know, that there are so many people just saying like, wow, I really needed to hear this. I needed to know I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. And I also agree that it really seems to be helping to establish some conversations across lines of belief and non-belief, which is another thing that I've really been kind of um, harping on, that we need more of this um, mm. in recent years. You know, we need to be building uh, coalitions uh, between believers and non-believers who are committed to pluralism and democracy and working toward the common good. Um, one of the impediments to that that I do see uh, that you kind of alluded to is that there is indeed a taboo on uh, criticizing religion in much of the American press or the public sphere. There is a lot of reluctance to, to do that. And, I mean, you know very well what kind of uh, deep pockets evangelicals have, and the whole right wing in general. They, have, they, can, they can afford to build up their own, like, ridiculous fake media system. And um, a lot of great more progressive type projects don't really get the funding. And the mainstream media, for the most part, just doesn't want to talk about things that can be wrong with religion. I mean, like, when you look at the reaction that conservative Christians orchestrate, like, why why would they want to talk about that, right? It, it, it can, like, prompt a gigantic explosion over nothing. They learn to stay away from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess people don't want to end up in the crosshairs of the 4chan to Fox pipeline. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> you all may remember when um, Exposed Christian Schools first blew up early last year, exactly a year ago, pretty much, um, reaching around 200,000 tweets in a couple of days. Uh, that hashtag was mentioned on Fox and Friends twice. It was denounced on um, 
Town Hall and the Daily Wire. And when they talked about it on Fox and Friends, they didn't mention who started it. They painted it, all these, these places painted it basically as like a conspiracy of liberal elites who just hate Christians, you know, not people who actually survived Christianity. Mm-hmm or, you know, particularly toxic forms of Christianity, and they want to discuss their experiences. And I did feel pretty abandoned by, you know, the more, quote-unquote, responsible, normal, liberal, whatever you want to call it, the not 4chan to Fox pipeline media, the ones that usually do a somewhat better job of sticking to the facts. Um, I felt pretty abandoned. We did get uh, one, I think, very good piece, though, in the Associated Press. So that was nice. And we ended up with a pretty milk toast piece in the New York Times. But hey, at least it made the New York Times. Mm-hmm. So I think we're starting to make some headway. And it's my hope that this book will also help to spark those kinds of conversations and that, you know, we'll see it kind of break through and make a splash and maybe just make it more possible for survivors of um, what, you know, sociologists of religion call high control or high demand religious groups who have a voice. Mm -hmm. And we have to recognize that, you know, uh, overall evangelicals are a high control religious group or a set of sub groups (laughs) of sub phenomena, high (laughs) control. (laughs) Well, there are a set set of high control religious groups for the, for the, I just wanted to try to throw sub phenomena in there, but I totally failed. You um, did it. Congratulations. <laughs> um, you know, so we have this issue where, like, the, the, the media knows they have a lot of money. They have a lot of power. They're at the center of our government. This is a demographic that you can't ignore and that has a strong PR machine that has deliberately cultivated relationships with the media over decades in a way to try to get favorable coverage that often works and so that's what we're working to overcome Mm -hmm. and do you think i mean just with the general sense of polarization that we that we have where excuse me as we're recording this we're in the midst of an impeachment process and just that sense of polarization and the the thought of approaching another national election cycle to me is a little daunting and like what? what well, <laughs> whatever do you mean? <laughs> and I'm I'm just the the thing that I the thing that I've I've hoped and, and trusted in is that humanizing stories like the ones that are shared in the essay are ones that can sort of reach across and and find common ground or at least acknowledge that hey this is someone's lived experience and they're not just some random member of woke Twitter for, uh, for like Ben Shapiro to get upset with, you know, these are, these are lived experiences. Um, but at the same time, I also know that, that even within our ex-evangelical community that, that grew out sort of organically from people meeting online, there's, that's also gone through changes and conflicts and I'm not going to navel gaze and, and, and talk about any of that, uh, or adjudicate any of that, but it just to, it's reaching a sense of uh, a new a new stage of development, uh, if I could put it positively or or frame it in some way. So, in the midst of all of that, like these these stories, are these the sorts of stories that that you think can can carry a lot of those conversations forward and and find that those resonance resonance with people that are open to it? I'm seeing that happen to. Um you know, some extent, and hopefully it will happen more. I mean, Lauren and I went on 
you know, with friends like these, with Anna Marie Cox, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, she's a Christian, and we had a really solid discussion with her. Like, she was very open to listening to how Christianity could be something that is harmful to some people or in some ways, you know. And um, similarly, uh, I get invited occasionally to go on State of Belief Radio with Reverend Dr. Welton Gaddy, who is just one of those, like, adorable and lovely, wonderful kind of old-school-style Baptists, like Jimmy Carter-style Baptists, that you just can't help but just, like, be like, you're just the sweetest person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he, you know, he's very open to listening about all this sort of stuff, too, and I discussed Empty the Pews with him on the radio, and he's syndicated on a number of stations, like, throughout Louisiana and maybe other parts of the South. I don't quite remember exactly Mm -hmm. where. Also podcasted online. So I'm definitely having some conversations with um, religious believers about this. Also, Crystal Cheatham, um, is featuring the, the book in the Our Bible app on her website mm-hmm. and in her newsletter. I think always the power of stories is is more effective than the power of data and that people can look at facts and only become more entrenched in their beliefs. But a story is what might be able to reach someone, um, mm-hmm. whether that's, you know, whether like, you know, not even changing their mind necessarily, but just being able to reach somebody through a story. Um, Blake, I think you're clearly very committed to that principle because your podcast is basically like the podcast form of our book, right? It's like talking to people about their different stories. And you can see when you, when you listen to all the episodes, how they're similar, how they're different, how they resonate with different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you just got to plant those seeds, right? Just plant... Just plant the seeds, <laughs> plant yeah. The mustard seeds. seed grows into a very if large If they fall large on rocky shrub. soil, yeah. shake, the, shake the dust off your feet. <laughs> those files are still... Okay, ac- I'm, mixing my, I'm mixing, mixing my parables. Those so. files are still accessible. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I still understand evangelical fluently, but I no longer speak it quite fluently. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I think both shows like this, and as well as books like Empty the Pews, uh, really explores is is sort of how identity and belonging functions when someone moves away from like a really formative religious community or type of belief. Um, and I'm curious, as both of you have emptied the pews in your own ways, so as you've grown and as you've dealt with with this reality in your own life of of moving away from from the religion that reared you um how has your sense of both identity let's start with identity and just start there and then i also want to talk a little bit about a sense of community because chrissy what was the term you just used to describe high control religious groups or high demand religious groups they use both yeah high demand religious groups they are so community oriented that it's disorienting for someone when they leave um to find a place a way to replace that so that's those are the two sections that i want to talk about next but let's start with with identity and how one's sense of self can change hopefully for the good as you move away from this sort of traumas that are described in the book? I mean, I'll I'll say that for me, I mean, identity loss has been a a big issue to deal with as my process of um, deconstruction was really protracted and painful. And I was so focused on it for a long time that it kept me from understanding certain things about myself and from achieving, 
some kind of self-realization, despite the fact that I had felt different somehow and weird in ways that I couldn't put my finger on since childhood and that I eventually came to figure out had to do with being transgender. And I feel so much more comfortable in my skin, so much better as I've been on hormones now for several months and my body starts to change in ways that feel more natural or right to me with the way, the sense of self that I have. But, you know, I couldn't even begin to sort that out until I finally made a solid break with evangelicalism in my 30s. I mean, I had definitely intellectually left it, but I had nothing to replace it with, and I was still kind of obsessing with working through it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely went through a years-long transition um, out of faith. I remember, you, you remember when, when Live Journal was popular? <laughs> I had like, hey, in Russia, it still is. I know, right? <laughs> I. I still, I had like um, wrestling with God as one of my live journal interests. Oh my God, I have to find that. <laughs> oh, it's long deleted, <laughs> I promise you. Um, but for me, I think it was an easier transition than for most people because I was raised in a suburb of Berkeley, California. Mm. Um, it was a very secular and liberal atmosphere and I was usually the odd one out for being Christian. Um, so it was, it was the, like the difficulty was mostly internal and and then conflicts with certain family members. But like the environment around me was like, yeah, get out of there. Come on. <laughs> um, so that's that was like, that made cool. it easier. Yeah. You had people saying, join us. Just <laughs> yeah. I mean, I never felt like because I always had these doubts, I never felt really felt a sense of community in the church, even though I was teaching Sunday school, I was singing in the worship band, like I was trying to get involved, but I, I could never make these connections because I was always questioning, you know, and I did connect with other people around me who were also questioning and now we're all atheists, but like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I have such a hard time imagining you as a Sunday school teacher. Like I totally want to see you like, you know, put on a church dress and get up and do like a Sunday school teacher performance. Oh, well, we didn't do church dresses in Berkeley. (laughs) Did you do flannel grams though? It was flannel grams. It was, (laughs) it was definitely like ripped jeans, but seriously in in the Presbyterian church. Oh yes. Fucking Californians, man. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> um, but uh, since since leaving the church and since starting my podcast and doing this book, I've come to realize that there is a community of people who have grown away from their faith in various different ways. You know, some of whom are still involved in Christianity in some ways, some of whom are still spiritual, some of whom are atheists like me. Um that there is a community that I didn't even realize was there that I've been able to be a part of in a way that I never really fit in, in my church community. Hmm. So you think it's, it's like a community of like spiritual misfits or, or what have you? I mean, that's a little, yes. that's I sure. The, island of misfit toys. The island of misfit uh, toys. Yeah. I understand I'm, I'm leaning into cliche and, and I'm sure as an, your editorial instincts are like, Blake, please stop. <laughs> no, that, that is the best one of all our shitty Christmas specials. <laughs> I have a soft spot for Burl Ives. I can't help it. Don't judge. But that poor, is that, Lauren, the, one, I think is you're that judging. the one with the, 
Is that the one with the poor I'm always snowman, judging. though? That's, that that's snowman gets a raw the, deal. The, uh, the bumble? Gets yeah. a raw deal. It's Rudolph, it's, it's, it's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> yes. However, the best single production number from any of our shitty Christmas specials is definitely the uh, Cold Miser and Heat Miser song from Year Without a Santa Claus. You know what? You lost me. I thought I knew a lot you of Christmas stuff. You lost me, stuff. too. <laughs> I, I thought I knew... All. It was covered by Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. How do you guys not know this? I, okay. I was on. Okay. down. <laughs> okay. Just as a just as a reference for how uncool I was, I wasn't cool enough for the swing dance craze. <laughs> okay, so I was a competitive tap dancer during the swing revival, so I lived and breathed that. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I'm putting a big L on my forehead at both of you. <laughs> so for me, it was go ahead. It was swing revival Monday through Friday, worship band on the weekends. Mm. <laughs> it was my like sort of like you know want to be cool evangelical cousin who first introduced me to the swing stuff. Yeah, I I she's a, she's she's still very much in the fold. I'm I am going to put an. I'm gonna give myself an out and say it was it was because I moved in high school and I didn't have friends. It was because I moved <laughs> and my girlfriend went to a different school. <laughs> All the swing kids, I didn't know them. <laughs> well, in fairness, like the year without a Santa Claus is a super weird Christmas special. But seriously, you guys have to watch the Cold Miser and Heat. Okay, and heat, we are in the weeds. We are <laughs> in the weeds now. This is a sub phenomena of this podcast. (laughs) It is really hard to replace a religious community. And, um, you know, some people who leave high-demand religious groups like uh, an evangelical denomination or a non-denominational evangelical church are able to find communities in better churches or some kind of, you know, healthier religious practice. Mm-hmm. But for those who can't, um, yeah, I mean, it can be difficult, I think, particularly if you're introverted, to find some group or project or you know institution in which you plug yourself into doing things with other people on a regular basis um and i mean also a lot of people who come out of this kind of situation are dealing with depression which makes it harder to get up the motivation to do that sort of thing too i feel less disconnected in a lot of ways now but i also still spend a lot of time by myself i mean as an introvert i'm also mostly okay with that but i would like to get more involved kind of in local community life now that i've moved to portland oregon but there's really just nothing that kind of works as a precise substitute for the things that, you know, you might miss about having a religious community. And maybe for some, and maybe in some ways that's, that's a good thing because I think, you know, in high demand religious groups, a, a lot of the stuff that makes you feel plugged into a community turns out to be very um, artificial and conditional. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much ghosting that happens when people leave their churches um, or, you think the people in your you think the people in your small group are your best friends, but then it turns out that if you deviate from them in any way, you know they're just gone from yeah, your life. Yeah, there's even a term for it. It's called holy ghosting. So holy yeah. ghosting. Oh yeah. my god. <laughs> <laughs> I've um, 
you know, I've seen some exceptions to that, but a lot of times, like, you're, what you feel like this intense emotional connection with a small group dissipates as soon as you're, like, no longer even in that small group. As we talk, I'm kind of wondering, like, does anyone really feel like they belong? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that seems like most people, maybe I'm just projecting my own feelings of ne never belonging, but, like... You're, you're so emo. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, no, but... um. I wonder to what extent like high demand religious participation is a result of not feeling like you belong and therefore doubling down or, mm. or striving ever more desperately to belong because like you're saying, you know, you deviate in one way from your small group and you're a pariah mm -hmm. that happens to people all the time who are very genuine believers right? Um, and, and very mm -hmm. devout. So, you know, to what extent, does anyone belong and and how to what extent are like these communities formed by just just trying desperately to belong mm -hmm. you heard it here on Expangelical <laughs> pod folks everyone will die alone <laughs> in the rain well lauren o'neill wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure put it on my tombstone <laughs> just to quote leslie nope watch out everyone it's all bad <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I'm, it's, it's very, it's, uh, it's very rare to find me in a good mood in January. <laughs> so. No, but I think that I, I do think that's fair, and I, 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 I do wonder sometimes if like this is as pronounced in other cultures or countries because America is uh, American religion, and that that's the only type of religion I can really speak to. It's pervasive, and it is one of the like belief is one of the things that you're supposed to be like of one accord with whatever your in-group is, right? Um, but when you marry that impulse to a high-demand group like evangelicalism or any other any other group that... that um, the other term that I've heard and have, have used more frequently lately is total institution. So, like, things like Mormonism, too, that can touch your entire mm -hmm. social and mental lives. Um, like, is that... Is that something that that is prevalent in other places, or is it just like Americans just go home lonely? <laughs> well, I'm sure it's prevalent in other places too. Yeah. I mean, I think that longing for that kind of deep uh, connection and feeling sometimes alienated are just you know extremely human emotions or subphenomena of being human. <laughs> Sorry. No, but like seriously, I think that what Lauren said was very insightful. Like, I really do. Um, you know, we want to belong, and it is possible to follow that impulse in ways that end up being very unhealthy. Like, you can get obsessed with it, and then you can end up in an unhealthy cult like group, mm -hmm. you know. Right. <laughs> and I mean, I think it can happen to many different types of people in many different types of cultures. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't have to be um, religion. Like, it could be a fandom, you know. Um, there's all kinds of ways that, like, you know, people try to connect and they think they all share the same ideas and beliefs and values and they get super excited and then they find out that they disagree about, you know, which Batman was the best and suddenly it was, they're It was Michael Keaton. Just, just to be. I'm, I'm not going to contest that. <laughs> Lauren's not. Lauren's, Lauren's rolling Lauren's her not eyes. So sure. so. Don't say Affleck though. Just don't. Don't I, say Adam West. I don't. I don't know what a Batman is. I don't. I have no truck with these Batmen. 
<laughs> Before we started recording, Lauren did mention that she was just here to bear witness. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, and I, I I apologize. I do think that I I I wasn't very eloquent or clear. I don't think it was necessarily like a, a distinctly American or like American exceptionalism uh, applied to religion. I think you're right. Like every, you know, the French invented the word ennui. It's not like, <laughs> um, it's not like <laughs> it doesn't exist in other places. I, I went down that rabbit hole just because I, there, there is something about the way in which belief works as a, as a means of control. I think one of the things that made me think about it was that I'm I'm reading this this book uh, by Neil Stevenson and it involves time travel and like they go back to like sixteen six the 1600s in England and um, it involves like witches and all this other stuff. Uh, it's a great book. Um, <laughs> but the reason I bring it up, it's got all the great stuff. 1600s witches, witches. time travel. I approve of witches. Quantum physics. It's great. Anyways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, the reason I mentioned that is one of the characters talks about how everyone was just expected to go to to church and there was a single church and there was it was just a social expectation. Um whereas mm-hmm. within within the sort of pluralist uh societies that we live in now, it the onus is on the person to to do this and it's not necessarily compulsory. It 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 is in in certain groups. Sure. Um, it would be getting a bit into the weeds, but I mean, there is a lot of sociology of religion that debates the question of, you know, how exceptional is the United States in, in this regard? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Europe followed one pattern of secularization or much of Europe did, particularly Western and Northern Europe that was kind of taken to be, uh, you know, the norm by sociologists, social theorists for much of the 20th century. Uh, and they raised the question of, well, why didn't the United States follow that path? And, um, and there's a lot of work out there on how, in the United States in particular, you know, it's, it's very difficult to find a kind of um, warm, accepting community outside of a religious group. Sometimes in the case of immigrants, they tend to overlap with um, ethnic groups or nationalities, which is something that came up in the Empty the Pews anthology, you know, as I, as I mentioned. There are places to find social solidarity and just people that, you know, you can maybe feel some sense of connection and trust with and ways to kind of get yourself centered in life, or they, or they can mm-hmm. be. Um, in European countries, I mean, there's also lots of debates about uh, things that are happening now, but religion still tends to kind of like, even if most people don't really believe it, bind communities together through just kinds of certain practices mm-hmm. and rituals that most, that most Europeans still do. And there's a serious question of, you know, how do you manage pluralism? As European societies receive more uh, immigrants and um, refugees, you know, we're seeing a lot of rising xenophobia in Europe again. And, you know, if you had been talking to me about this 10 years ago, I might have said, well, the United States has done a much better job of uh, integrating other populations, a melting pot. But, yeah, that obviously is kind of false. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're all wrong sometimes. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, the United States um, has this kind of, like, marketplace of religions is a term that, like, a lot of sociologists of religion throw around. Mm-hmm. 
um, which makes things a little bit more fluid, but, you know, and I guess I can have good things and bad things about it, but one of the bad things would be, you know, bowling alone. Right. As uh, the, the famous book from whatever year that was, was called. I'm thankful for books like these because putting these sorts of stories out into the into the public sphere allows this sort of conversation. And these are conversations that have that have happened before uh, and they'll happen again because people keep coming up in these religions and keep having to leave them because they're either forced out or because their convictions um, lead them away. Given that we're, we're in this election year, given the strength of evangelicals in particular in the United States, what do you think the value is for the broader culture to be able to hear the stories that are, that are in this book here in 2020? Well, so, I mean, one thing that I would say simply on a kind of pragmatic political level is that a lot of um, American liberals, and maybe let's use that loaded term, liberal elites, and the pundit, the pundit class, they really don't know what this is like. And so there's a lot of the public out there that simply isn't informed on the extent uh, of Christian extremism in the United States and the harm that it does. And I think if that public and the pundit class were better informed then, you know, we might have different political possibilities than we are currently faced with. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, pre precisely because we've come to this moment when the Christian right is really able to impose a lot of its theocratic agenda through a doofus president that no one expected would actually ever be the vessel for that agenda, but he is. You know, um, oh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's opening up the <laughs> it's opening up the possibility for the the wider public to start seeing uh, how illiberal religion fundamentalism is antithetical to democracy. I mean, you know, many of us grew up being taught that it would be better if everyone in the whole world became Christian, meaning, of course, Christians like us. So it's even narrower than it might sound, although it's already genocidal on its face. Um, you know, the kind of Christianity that evangelicals grow up with is overtly anti-pluralist. And yet, you know, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, even the New York Times, most of the time they treat evangelicals as if, oh, they're a little quirky, but they're just good people who are participating in democracy and good faith like everybody else. And they need to be accommodated, even when that means they can't bake a cake, because that's definitely religious expression. It's very religious when you bake cakes. I just want everyone to know that. <laughs> Gay cakes are the most religious thing you can bake. Just FYI. It's the most delicious sacrament. <laughs> so, you know, basically, because of the goodwill of the liberal pundit class, right, fundamentalists are running amok, and they have a real possibility of implementing Gilead. So that's bad, and people should know that that's bad, and then maybe we can stop it. Um, and, and as Chrissy has talked about a lot, um, there is this idea like in the mainstream media that religion is always benign. There's this kind of pop culture idea of Jesus as just being a real nice guy, you know, and he, he just kind of stands for whatever you think being nice is. Mm -hmm. um, and so people who maybe, you know, grew up going to church occasionally or, you know, just kind of grew up with the idea that like, oh, my mom was religious and, you know, she she was nice. They kind of have this idea that by definition, Christianity must be, you know, overall a good thing. And some people might take it too far, but we can't, you know, 
we can't criticize Christianity as a whole because obviously it's it's mostly benign. Yep, and you know that kind of goes along with the whole dismissiveness that we see often toward survivors of abuse mm-hmm. who speak out of you know various kinds. Um, this whole sort of well, you know, I had childhood trauma too, and I turned out fine. So anyone <laughs> who says I had X and I turned out fine actually didn't turn out fine, unfortunately. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you heard it right here on X Vangelo. <laughs> you put it on my tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> the tombstone joke is yet another sub-phenomena of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> of the broad phenomenon known as humor. <laughs> I, I actually know that for the most part, we've talked more about the themes of the book and what it addresses than a lot of the stories that are in it. So are there any in particular that that you think you would recommend to people that would be picking up the book or if they get it from the library or however they, they receive it, are there any, any, I'm not asking for your favorites, but any that come to mind? I recommend them all. They're all 100% brilliant and everyone should read them. Um, I recommend mine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, you know, versions of this question come up like every time I think that Lauren and I are interviewed about the book and I try to give a different answer every time because Many of these uh, essays resonate with me in different ways. I mean, they probably all resonate with me on some level. And yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pick favorites and talk about, you know, which ones might have the highest literary quality. I do think they're all very good. Like, it's a, it's a strong book. And um, and Lauren did a fantastic job with the editing, and I kind of helped a little with that. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I mean... It really depends on like sort of what aspect of this type of, you know, right-wing hardline religion you really are interested in, in capturing. And I mean, that's also kind of why we divided the book into sections that are, you know, defined by theme. Although there's a lot of overlapping themes in books in different sections, and it was a little bit difficult to hash out which books went in which sections. You know, I think, um, well, I already, already mentioned um, Ruby Theogarajan's essay, God the Investment Banker, I'm interested in the international stuff in the book. Well, I'm interested in all of it, but, you know, um, J.L. Powers, also a Stanford connection, um, running from the monster of the deep. It's a pretty fascinating story that takes place. I mean, most of of it takes place in South Africa, but she also reflects on, um, you know, missions and weird stories of, like, miracles that happen on the mission field and how these get passed around, and they're always, like, one degree removed, and you know, other people's stories become your stories. It's like this big game of telephone. Mm. I thought that was just very compellingly written. And also she does a great job of just portraying this like ridiculous, um, charismatic Christian surfer dude. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fun story. So I want to highlight that one right now. Um, Um, I also like to highlight different ones when we get questions like these. And I think this time I would love to shout out, uh, Chrissy briefly mentioned, um, Juliana Delgado Lopera's essay, which is written basically like in Spanglish. Um, a lot of her work is written in Spanglish. I, I really love how it explores not just like being in a Christian culture, but also being thrown from a Colombian culture into an American culture and mm-hmm. also being thrown from a Catholic culture into an evangelical culture. So it's like a real collision of worlds in so many different ways, which she explores just beautifully and in terms 
that anyone can relate to, even though I, you know, have not experienced anything remotely like that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. That is an amazing essay, a tour de force. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just like, it just jumps off the page from the first page, and then you're like on this roller coaster throughout. It's, a, it's, a, it's really just like an incredible piece of writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and all the essays, as you mentioned, are, are really wonderful and really do illustrate all the different ways in which people have survived and, and moved beyond a lot of the traumas and things that, that they experienced. And sometimes that's resolved within the essays itself and sometimes it's not. Um, but I, I really love what you've, what you've put together and what you put out into the world. Um, the book is called empty the pews stories of leaving the church and it's available everywhere on Amazon and elsewhere. I want to thank you both for, for coming on the show um, is there anything else you guys would like to plug? Any upcoming, uh, anything that else that's upcoming for you or where else people can find you online? Uh, thanks, Blake. So um, I did just add an events page recently to my website, cstroop.com, um, where I have several upcoming events listed and there's a link that people can follow to, follow to a um, shared Google Calendar that's publicly available. Uh, so I do have a couple of events coming up in Indianapolis in February that are open to the public. There is going to be a, a panel discussion on um, Christianity and white supremacism that I'm a part of on February 17th. It's um, sponsored by IUPUI, and uh, it's going to take place at an interfaith center. Um, the it's called Uli Pui. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean... I know what you're talking about, but anyway. <laughs> no, I know. Um, I don't. <laughs> it's just a Hoosier thing. It's a Hoosier like, thing. Sorry. <laughs> Hoosiers are ridiculous. <laughs> it's true. That I believe. Uh, <laughs> well, exhibit A. <laughs> exhibit B. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I also have a, uh, a book signing and reading um, at Indie Reads Books. Uh, on the evening of February 19th, starting at 5 p.m. That's on Massachusetts Avenue in downtown Indianapolis. You know, one of, like, the two cool streets in Indianapolis. So I love that bookstore. It's a great, it is a great bookstore, though. Support that bookstore if you're in the Indi Indianapolis area. It's a not-for-profit that donates a lot of proceeds to adult literacy education. And, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and uh, at cstroop.com. Um, I have a podcast called Sunday School Dropouts about the Bible, where I, an ex-Christian, and my husband, a non-believing sort of Jew, read all the way through the Bible and beyond. You can also follow me on Twitter at Lauren E. O'Neill. O'Neill is spelled with an A, like Shaquille O'Neal spells it. Do people really spell that differently? I'm sorry, I just, I never asked that question before, but it always pops into my mind when you bring this up. What are the well, other variant, variant spellings of O'Neill? Like Eugene O'Neill, right? O-N-E-I-L-L. -L. Oh, yeah, that's right. I totally forgot that. Yeah, that <laughs> one's much more common, and it's how everybody tries to spell my name. Well, it must just be that, like, you're my favorite O'Neill, so I... Oh, thank you. Forget about the E-I spelling. If I could name drop Shaquille while mentioning how to spell my name, I would do it all the time yeah, as well. Yeah, that's just my Uncle Shaq. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a blast. Thank you both for coming on the show today. Thank you so Thanks much for, for having, having us. Blake.